Hey everybody, welcome back to the Big Mark Podcast. This is me, your host, Big Mark. If it's your first time listening, welcome. If not, welcome back. Uh, like I always say, you know, if you ever want to reach out to the podcast, let us know if there's any topics or anything you want to let us know for the podca- uh, for future podcasts. Hit us up on the Big Mark Podcast on our Twitter or at the Big Mark Podcast um, for Instagram. Um, hit us up on our DMs there if, you, if you'd like. Um, if wherever you're listening, if you can give us a five star review, I know it sounds like uh, doesn't sound like much, but it does make a big difference for us. Um, uh, if you want to support the podcast, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash the big mark pod. And you know, if you if you like the podcast and you know cool people who are gonna want to listen, let them know. Uh, and uh, we can uh, we can help uh, expand expand the fan base here again. I love all y'all. Thank you again for listening. Welcome back. Um, and again, you know, I was, I was thinking about doing what, what, uh, what topic to do today. And, it, you know, this is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I was thinking I had my list of, of the many episodes that I kind of wanted to do. I, uh, I kind of came across, uh, the, the Nike story, the story of Phil Knight. I read the book, um, shoe dog, which was amazing. Anyone should, uh, Anyone listening should definitely check that out. Really good book, really well, really well written, and you know it kind of um, does a little, uh, a little spidey on my mic there. Uh, spooky Halloween, um, but uh, um, you know the that the his whole story obviously Phil Knight his whole story of how how he kind of created Nike and, and all that stuff came up but you know get, we'll get into that today but one of the biggest things that you know it really it really made me want to kind of you know not necessarily take a big left turn but you know not not really dive too far into the story because again if you really want to know a lot more about kind of Phil Knight himself that the, again the book um, really dives into it but kind of the story of Nike and how it really fits into like the subculture of, of sneakers and sneakerheads and that whole thing. I really wanted to kind of dive into that. And like I said, you can't really, you can't really talk about one without the other, you know, a lot of underground, underground cultures, that's how they start and that's how they stay. You know, you know, people, started kind of getting into shoes and collecting them and and no one you know wasn't really necessarily a mainstream thing when it started like in, like anything that's that starts it's usually a small group of people doing it and eventually it starts to it starts to spread right um and usually kind of once things make it into mainstream style people are kind of like all right we're, we're on to the next thing once everyone's kind of taken over it or you know grunge i've talked about grunge music a lot is a, is a fantastic example of that where you know the mainstream and you know all the all the normal kind of whatever places that were necessarily like stuff that grunge was maybe even going against it was like all of a sudden they were starting to embrace grunge and starting to put out you know clothing lines surrounding it again when the mainstream embraces something it usually ends up deeming it uncool but again, influence can kind of come from anywhere, and it's really, really interesting how how subcultures start. And I was in my research, kind of, I watched this tremendous documentary called Just for Kicks. Everyone should definitely check that out. But in a lot of my other research too, you know, 
I was trying to find out, you know, how, you know, you know, how did gym shoes basically morph from sport, like from sporty function to high fashion? Um, you know, we're talking athletes, designers, rappers, street cats, millionaires, graffiti artists, brand marketers and collectors are basically all the people who, who their each one of their little decisions slowly forms the public opinion, you know, the tastemakers, all those people out there that are deciding what's cool and what isn't. And then that influences, but again, influences, it's, it's kind of a bit of a two way street and where it comes from, you never really know. So let's go back to Eugene, Oregon in 1964, where at least the the story of the Nike sneaker started. So it all starts with two guys, Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight. Bill Bowerman um, had been the head coach of the University of Oregon's track team. He was the coach of the U.S. national team. Um, He actually was a major player in the the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh story, the Wild Wild Country documentary went over it, I actually did a podcast episode on it, so you should go check that one out. But Bill Bowerman himself was actually a big player in that in that story. But again, he was also Phil Nate's coach um, at the University of Oregon. Um, and the two of them um, started realizing that the quality of running shoe that was available in the States the um the price point you had to pay to get a really good one was so expensive and they kind of figured and Phil Knight did um did part of his his um his masters on this but he figured that they could import um import shoes from Japan and they started working with the with the Tiger um the Onitsuka and Tiger uh brand um from Japan they made they made running shoes and uh, Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman started importing these together. Um, they created an LLC called Blue Ribbon Sports. And again, like I said, imported these these Onitsuka Tigers and started kind of like distributing them all over the states. Um, over time, uh, Phil kind of took a little bit more of the company just to kind of make things, make things fair. Well, you know, make decisions easier in the future, I should say. Um... And basically, Bill, with that knowledge of, of, of running and his whole thing was like always have a lighter shoe. If you have a lighter shoe, you're gonna you know you're gonna shave so much time off off your off your um, off your runs. And you know um, over the years, um, by 1968, so Bill and Bill and Phil, <laughs> Bill and Phil, basically got together and they be, and they started. Blue Ribbon Sports in 1964, and by 1968, um, Bill had designed what was later to become the uh, the Nike Cortez. Um, it was it wasn't re- released until 1972, um, but essentially they named it um, the Cortez because at the time uh, the uh, Adidas as Azteca Gold was like the best the best running shoe at the time, so they named it after Hernan Cortez who was the man who conquered the Aztecs in history. So that was a, that was a, a cool name. Um, and it's still around today. I'm sure everyone would kind of recognize a Cortez if you ever saw it. Uh, by 1970, uh, Bowerman started experimenting with his wife's waffle iron. And this is kind of where the big fame came. 
uh, he used uh, he used the iron to imprint a waffle pattern um, on on like rubber to create grip without adding too much weight. So he thought again um, the the materials at the time for making running shoes obviously was a lot of leather and things like that. So to create a lot of grip, you had to add a lot of weight or add spikes or anything, even like the in the foam foam mid, uh, um, soles kind of thing, just like they, they probably didn't hold up as well. So Bowerman thought that, you know, using that waffle pattern is going to give this extra grip. He was doing all kinds of experiments, and when he was working on the shoes, he was working in a really small and unventilated space, and actually the glue and the solvents caused permanent nerve damage, um, and, and the nerve damage in his legs actually rendered him unable to run at all. So he never was even able to use the shoes that he created. So kind of an interesting thing there. Um, in 1971, Blue Ribbon Sports prepared to launch its own footwear line. So they kind of, you know, got what they could out of the out of the Tiger brand. And they wanted to kind of branch it on their own. Um, in 1971, uh, Carolyn Davidson designed the famed Nike swoosh. It's by far one of the most recognizable logos and over several weeks, Davidson presented several logos tonight. Um, by the time he had to choose, it was kind of approaching the deadline. And he said, he, he said, you know, I don't love it, but I think it's going to grow on me. And I'm sure it's grown on him by now. Um, uh, Knight also renamed Blue Ribbon Sports in 1971. Um, he named it Nike after the winged Greek goddess of victory. Uh, 1976, Nike had hired an ad agency uh, where they produced a commercial in which no Nike product was was shown. So it was a groundbreaking commercial at the time. But again, just proving how popular Nike was. And, you know, again, they were always kind of avant-garde and they always kind of went against the grain. And by 1980, Nike had attained 50% of the, of the market share. 1988, their second ad agency, uh, Whedon and Kennedy, um, came up with the slogan, Just Do It, which was chosen by Advertising Age as one of the top slogans of the 20th century. The reason I'm talking a lot about this is I find that essentially what makes Nike Nike is their advertising, is all that. And that's what put them out there. That's what put them in the, in the scene. But again, like I said, it's a two-way street. So in the 1970s, that sneaker subculture was just starting. Um, basketball, of course, was was kind of responsible for creating the whole sneaker subculture. But hip-hop hip -hop was actually responsible for becoming a staple style. Um, it started with guys that used to dance, b-boys. Um, shoes that were comfortable to dance in kind of became the popular shoe. Um, and the original B-Boy look was the first to prominently feature, you know, the sneaker. It was kind of, if, it, if sometimes it was the most prominent thing. The rest of your wardrobe was almost subdued and your shoes were the, were the, were the, main, were the main thing. Um, and it's funny, it, it coming from, and like this, this is all coming from New York City. You know, the basketball players playing in the street, you know. Um, the b-boys obviously obviously dancing it's all coming from New York City and New York City again is a city where where people are looking down you know everyone's 
staring down, riding the subway, you know, your head's down, walking in the street. So everyone's looking at your shoes. So that's the only way you're going to make your statement and catch people's at- is it t- attention is with the shoes. Now, the people who set the trends weren't necessarily, of, uh, uh, you know, weren't necessarily people of means. So, you know, a subculture of cleaning your sneakers was also created because, again, the, the most important thing was, you know, you always have to stay fresh. And, you know, again, I'm it's funny. My, my grandfather was a shoemaker, too. So I, I you know, I, I really like sneakers. I'm, I'm really into them. I don't collect them, you know, like other sneakerheads. I'd rather be able to have them and wear them. Um, you know, I don't put them on the shelf or, you know, make sure they don't get creased. I wear them. I wear them until they're fucked up, and then I and then I toss them. Um, and again, my grandfather was a shoemaker, and you know, it's always really important to have good shoes. I've always been raised raised that way. And but I appreciate it. Again, it's some it's something that's interesting. You know, a sneaker a running shoe, a basketball shoe, whatever you want to call it. It's almost similar, you know, it's 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 in that kind of category of of, you know, utility you know, utilitarian art. You know, it's like an, a musical instrument, right? You know, it can be beautiful on its own if you're just looking at it, right? Like a guitar, you know, you can look at a Fender Stratocaster and be like, "Oh my gosh, it's beautiful." But then someone can pick it up and play beautiful music with it, right? And the shoe you know, is, is somewhat of a sporting, sporting equipment, right? Which equipment and an instrument, you know, one in the same thing in, in, in essence. And, um, and again, you know, I, so I really appreciate, you know, the kind of art and design that goes into it. Not only the structural design and the cool new uh, materials and things, but obviously the way, the way the shoe looks too. But again, the subculture of keeping your your shoes clean is super cool. And it's, I, you know, I have, you know, cleaning thing, brushes and and different protectant shits that you can put on shoes. And, you know, I use it and it prolongs the life of the shoe. It, you know, you can stay fresh too and you can go out looking like you have a relatively new pair of shoes, even though you've had them for a long time. Like I had these Jordan 5s, these retro 5s, really nice, almost all white joints, um, in like the red, the red and black, like bulls with the 23. Um, and I had them forever. Cause you know, just, you get the, you get out the fucking, um, magic eraser, you go to town, maybe get a little, little, uh, toothbrush action happening. But again, you treat them relatively right. And, and they last a long time and, you know, shoes are expensive, but shit, man, like, you know, as long as you put the time in, but you know, there's people wanting to pop tags. You want to stay as fresh as possible. But again, the people who are setting these trends to begin with weren't necessarily people who could afford <clears throat> buying a million pairs of shoes, right? So that subculture, again, a, a sub-subculture of, of staying fresh, people moving around with, with toothbrushes on them, like, don't step on my shit, like, keeping them fresh and clean was was really, really important, Um in the early, early days, you know, a lot of a lot of brands were, you know, Adidas, Puma, Pony was out, Converse was doing mad stuff. You know, in the early days, it wasn't it wasn't really Nike, um, because in the in, you know going into the eighties, when the sneaker craze was really popping, um, Adidas was you know this rising star in the sneakerhead culture. So Adidas was really running the show completely running the show. Um, 
And at one point, Run DMC actually made a song called My Adidas. And that's what really rocketed them rocketed them to, you know, the, the Adidas superstar, the classic. Really pushed that to the top, top of the list. And um, it's, you know, it's kind of one of those things where life imitates art, art imitates life. But again, this this culture where literally people, everyone who was going to these run DMC shows where, where hip hop was just kind of, you know, burgeoning. It was early. It was an early um, genre of music. And it was also bringing this whole, this whole culture and the street fashion, you know, into the music. And then that was influencing people who listen to music. And then that was influencing the street culture. And then the clothing it was this really interesting kind of like, I don't know, again, just culture of back and forth, all this different um, influence, you know, between, between, you know, the art and, and, and then the people that were out there. And um, eventually it actually led to a sneaker sponsorship, you know, Run DMC were, became the first band ever to get a, a sneaker sponsorship with, with Adidas. But at the time, Nike was still kind of viewed as like a running brand and quite frankly, a white person shoe, you know, so they were not cool um, at this time. And again, Adidas killing it with with run. Uh, Converse also had their weapon campaign with Magic and Bird. So, you know, they, they were looking into sponsoring athletes and they had sponsored a few runners. Um, but again, they kind of threw all their basket in this new uh, at the time in 1984 this new player just joining the NBA, rookie Michael Jordan. And um, basically, they just made one of history's greatest deals. And one of the most intriguing things about the deal was, you know, the fines. So essentially, Nike and Jordan started creating the Jordan line. And the first ever Jordan, the Jordan 1, um, were red and black. And in the in the NBA, the NBA rules at the time where your shoe had to be mostly white or mostly black or have elements of white and black or something like that. But there was like specific color rules that you couldn't. So Michael was getting fined like a thousand, three thousand, five thousand dollars a game just to wear these shoes. And Nike was paying it. So basically, Michael became a renegade just for wearing these shoes. And of course, you know. That, that is just going to fucking drive sales like crazy, right? Because everyone wants to be, you know, infamous. Um, the Jordan 1 also became the first of its kind as a series. Um, and obviously the Jordan brand blew up. Tinker Hatfield became the new lead designer for the Jordans. Um, and, you know, some of the designs he made were absolutely incredible. Some of them were wild. But they made 23 different models, obviously, uh, you know, for, for Michael Jordan's number. But again, this this whole, this whole, you know, this new, um, this new kind of attitude that Nike had here, you know, was really, really catching people's eyes. And, you know, that partnership of, of Whedon and Kennedy, Nike, and with Tinker Hatfield and Michael Jordan and, and all of it, right? Like, there's just something, there's something when you look at it, it's like, it's, it's, it's almost magical. Like, it's a match made in heaven. And then they started running this ad campaign um, with Spike Lee as this Mars Blackman character. And 
people were, you know, people would look forward to the new commercial and, you know, when the new, when the new Jordan was going to come out next and the new colorway and it just became this whole thing. And then Spike Lee directed do the right thing. And the whole sneaker kind of culture was not only summed up or sorry, not only the whole sneaker culture thing was summed up, but this really interesting look at kind of white and black culture at the time um, was all summed up in this one scene and do the right thing. And if you've never seen the movie, go check it out. It's fantastic. But there's a scene where there's an interaction where this black dude's walking down the street and this white dude and this and he's wearing a bird bird t-shirt, a Larry Bird t-shirt, you know, Boston Celtics bumps into him and he scuffs this man's Jordans. He, he scuffs, you know, the black dude's Jordans and the black guy's in his Lakers gear and he's just like, like, yo, man, like, what the fuck? Like, you scuffed up my Jordans. And the guy's like, yo, my bad. And you could tell, like, you know, it just the tension was there. And it's and it's crazy and it's so important, like, you know, for, you know, this guy's shoes are important and you fucked them up. And, you know, realistically, if they're just cheap, shitty shoes, you're probably not going to get that mad. But again, that just became this thing where, you know, it just, you know, it blew up and, you know, it kind of, like I mentioned before, you know, that art started influencing life and people really started taking the Jordan seriously. Um, and it became a status symbol. Again, they became relatively, you know, they're, they became relatively expensive, but they became relatively rare. And, you know, for a long time, especially in New York City, people would rob you for your Jordans. Um, you know, you'd just be walking down the street and they'd just be like, give me your, give me your Jordans. You have to walk on barefoot, you know. Um, Macklemore has a song, Wings, tremendous song. You know, he's got that line in Phil Knight, Tricked Us All, where it's kind of this idea where this marketing campaign was so intense and so amazing. And, you know, what they did with Jordan, how they got in and and just perfectly, you know, perfectly marketed it to the people who wanted it and, you know, created this this need and this want for 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 these shoes and then people were fucking getting shot for them and and people were getting killed for their shoes and and you know you'd be you'd be worried to you know walk out in the street with your shoes and like not get not get sh you know robbed at least um so as like i said as the sneakers became more more mainstream um, sneaker hunters were born and they, and these sneaker hunters, which are still around today, you know, they tried to find out, you know, they find out of stock and, you know, rare, rare kicks that were out there. And it's again, this, this culture that exists where, you know, people are lining up trying to get in these things. And Nike started creating rare release shoes, you know, where they only made a thousand pairs or a hundred pairs. And, you know, people would know when they were dropping and, I always thought it was really interesting because, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, a lot of times when something becomes relatively mainstream, it becomes less cool. But Nike, again, they they found a way and they just had the right people, you know, with the right minds at work. They found a way to kind of get ahead of that, where they almost leaned into the fact that, you know, that, you know, people wanted these rare releases and, you know, they teamed up with cool designers and, you know, not only Tinker Hatfield, but for the rest of Nike too, you know, with cool designers and graffiti artists or, you know, hip hop artists, you know, obviously look at Yeezy to be, you know, most current, but Jay-Z has had shoes. 50 Cent has had shoes. You know, the G unit line was nuts. 
And again, just Nike seems to stay on top and they kind of break that rule. Um, obviously, you can't really talk about Nike without kind of talking about some of their labor controversy that they've had. You know, sweatshops in China, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Mexico, where Nike violated minimum wage and overtime laws. Everyone knows about those. And basically, as of July 11th, which is a while ago now, but still, two-thirds of Nike's factories in 2011, two-thirds of Nike's factories still didn't meet the company's standard for worker treatment. So like I said, you know, it's a company that they're clearly intelligent company. Like I said, they they are masters and, you know, luck luck of the draw with the Jordan things. But everything else they've done has been calculated and, and masterful and it's gotten them to the point that they are because it's it's you know because they wanted to and let alone the controversy and you know they're they're cutting corners and you know labor laws um nike still somehow perseveres now is it all marketing maybe you know it's it's amazing what they can do and you know they they stay ahead of the trends and it's fantastic. They have fashion line, like pretty haute couture fashion stuff all the way down to like you can buy a pair of fucking socks. Like they kind of covered it, you know, Nike golf and all that stuff with Tiger Woods, like everybody like it's it's something, you know, but it's still our choice. And again, every time we buy into places like this and we we buy into brands and and you know, buy a piece of clothing and wear it out. We, we cast our vote and we, and we vote for having that company stay around. And as much as it's important, we can say, fuck, you know, they shouldn't be, you know, having, you know, issues in their factories and they shouldn't be charging 200 bucks for, for shoes. You still fucking buy it. You know, we, we kind of turn to block, turn a blind, blind eye to it to stay with the status quo. You know, Apple, for instance, right? Look at the iPhone. It's kind of a shit phone. The Samsung phones, the some of those fucking uh, Google phones are amazing. They got crazy cameras and shit. But Apple, the marketing's there. And again, status symbols too, right? You know what 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 people do and the choices people make to kind of again keep up with the Joneses. It's it's really strange, you know. But what's wrong with that, really? What is wrong with staying up with the status quo? You know, it's easy. If everyone has an iPhone, everyone's got the iMessage, you know. We all know people who have an iPhone, you all know when you see that fucking green shit show up, you're like, what the fuck is this person saying? Right? Like, you know, even, you know, all my bandmates don't have an iPhone. I'm the only one. We all have to communicate through um, through WhatsApp. And in fact, I'm the only one who can hear some of the shit that we share on it. So it's like, now I'm actually the one that's losing out. So now I'm actually consciously choosing to stay with something that doesn't work. But again, most people have it. And, you know, I don't even have the newest iPhone, but I just stick with it and I know how to use it and it's easy. You know, I will say this. I'm a big Apple product guy. You know, I'm recording this right now on an on an Apple laptop. They do sync up seamlessly. It's really nice to have an iPad, but I bet if I did, it'd be great. You know. I know Google kind of does that too with, with all the storage things and, and Google's and what have you. But, 
again, what what is wrong with with keeping up with the Joneses? And again, maybe it's more. Maybe what's wrong with it is blindly following it. You know, does that make does it make it any better that I know about you know the the controversies and the child labor laws and you know the shit that's gone by and the history and you know people getting jacked for their shoes just because fuck it you know do I just say whatever throw caution to the wind I'm still going to wear Nike products um again I think I think the key is don't follow blindly you know understand what you're doing understand that you know maybe maybe if it, it you know if there's something anything you know whether it's Nike or or any other company you know, if it's something that that bothers you, the only thing you can do is stop buying their products. So if it really does bother you, you're going to stop. And I guess that says something about me and says as something about everyone who does know about this stuff and keeps going. Right. So you make it your own. And the only way. The only way to keep going is to keep going. And I think, you know, things become popular for a reason. People like them for a reason. Yeah. Marketing is a giant part of this and everything that goes on you know, from Mad Men on and the illusion of choice and, uh, you know, you know, we don't, we don't have enough time right in this, in this episode to get into it, but, you know, we start touching on the notions of free will. How much, you know, how much, how many decisions do you make in a day are really completely up to you? Or are they just an aggregate, an aggregate of every decision made up until that point? Or again, is, you know, you know, the things that are, especially with social media and things, so many things are curated through ads and even just through the, through your clicks and the things that you like, you know, algorithms are out there to present the things that you like to you and show you and remove the things that are, are irrelevant, but who, who deems them relevant or not? You know, there's always this thing I remember using it. It was called stumble upon and it was kind of like Reddit and stumble upon came out at the same time and Reddit's still around rock and stumble upon was basically just like a complete, internet randomizer and you would just click this button that said stumble and you'd click this button and it would literally just pop up with some random destination on on the internet which obviously had its twists and turns but sometimes it would be a a website sometimes it would be a, a wikipedia page sometimes it would literally just be an image on its own and again, like you, you were exposed to things that you never thought that you'd be exposed to because they were completely random. So do we want to curate our whole life? Do we want to have everything laid out for us where, you know, we don't have to think. We just wait for the next thing that Nike drops and, and we're good. Who knows? I know I'm going to keep rocking their stuff. I'm going to keep getting after it, you know. But again, understand what it means and, you know, Understand that there's a lot there's a lot of culture behind it too. And, you know, it's part of that subculture. And there there's so much there's so much more to go. Who knows what who knows what Nike will be in the future? Again, that swoosh and just do it is one of the most recognizable logos on the planet. Um, but again, just know where it's coming from and don't don't follow blindly. Thank you so much for listening today. Um, if you ever want to reach out, you know, hit us up on our, our Twitter or Instagram at the big Mark podcast or at the big Mark pod. Um, please tell your friends if you like the podcast, spread the word. Uh, if you want to donate to the podcast, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash the big Mark pod. 
And yeah, if you like the if you like the podcast, please give us a five star review wherever you're listening. And if you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe to the channel so you know when we drop our next video. Again, thanks so much uh, for listening. Hope made you think a little bit today. We'll see you soon. Just do it. Peace.